A few tweets by the anonymous blogger Your Fat Friend on Twitter at Y-R-F-A-T-F-R-I-E-N-D. In 2020, we are consistently repeating that racism, especially anti-blackness, is at the root of anti-fatness because it is. In 2020, we are supporting fat trans people who are too often forced to lose weight regardless of their histories or other health conditions in order to access life-saving, gender-affirming healthcare. In 2020, we are letting fat people describe their own bodies, even if the words they choose make us feel uncomfortable. In 2020, we are interrupting fat shaming and non-consensual diet talk whenever it happens. Hello, agents, and welcome back to part two of episode 204, Age Before Beauty. I began with those quotes because I really felt moved by them. It's the new year, and I think so many people are thinking about their self-image, whether that's weight-related or related to other body image issues. This is the peak time when we're hearing all of these narratives about how we should feel about our bodies, how we should talk about our bodies, and other people's bodies, we have to band together during this New Year's resolution season to listen to what other people's needs are. It is not appropriate to comment on someone's weight or ask about someone's diet or start talking about your own without getting consent from the person you're talking to that they are willing and comfortable to talk about those topics. So just like with part one, a quick content warning this whole episode is going to contain a lot of discussion of eating disorders, body image issues, and a lot of those tough topics, but I hope you will join us in supporting writers like your fat friend. You can view her website at y-o-u-r-f-a-t-f-r-i-e-n-d.com or find her on Twitter using the handle I gave. There are also so many other amazing people. I'm a big fan of Crutches and Spice, Imani Barberin, a black disabled woman who writes about body image and the way that she is treated in the world. It's so important to think about the way that everybody inhabits the body that they're in. And maybe they have a different or similar relationship to that body than you do. So please consider reading all the great women of color, feminists, queer women, women with disabilities, women with chronic illnesses. There are so many people writing about their size, weight, and or appearance in relation to other identity categories and how we can all learn from each other as people in this world from the way that they write um, and write about loving themselves better. So let's spread a message of love to other people as well. Lastly, I'm really sorry, but there is still a cricket chirping in my half of the audio, and I hope it doesn't bother you too much. Anyways, I don't want to preamble for too long, but I just wanted to continue touching on the topics from last time and letting you know that we love hearing from you and supporting you. We've gotten such great feedback already. Happy New Year's. May your resolutions be about self-care and self-love and not about anything else that the world is trying to tell you. So without further ado, let's dive back in to where we left off two weeks ago. Pete is watching the dressing room where Jenny, the assistant, delivers a Buddha statue 
And he immediately thinks this is the artifact and rushes out to grab Jenny and pull her aside to figure out what, you know, how the artifact works, what's happening. But it is not, in fact, an artifact. They do the famous sort of like, you got to tell us how the artifact works and how you're aging the women. And then she's like, what are you talking about? And then they're like, what are you talking about? And the actual fact is that she is peddling diet pills, which she says are not hurting the girls, uh, although they are on the black market, they're illegal. Um, again, like diet pills are, unless a doctor has prescribed some medication for you, I think taking any of these over-the-counter diet medications is really, really... It's dangerous. It's dangerous, and you should be careful. She says they're not the bad kind, they're all the bad kinds. Like, yeah, and like, what does she know? She's not a nutritionist. She's not a doctor. Like, if you have to hide them in that way, they're not okay. Yeah. Um, my focus was actually on the artifact slash not artifact itself. It's funny to me that Pete thought it even could be an artifact because the commercialization of Eastern spiritual and religious culture is like a problem. Yeah, that's a, a great point. And it has been a problem in the West for a long time. And you can probably find a Buddha statue anywhere for like $5. You know what I thought you were going to say is that Buddha, I forget the word for it, but in actual Eastern religion, there is a word for like the chubby Buddha. Like his yeah. image, his image as a religious figure is sort of like rotund and happy man, um, which I don't know if this is some kind of like reverse psychological awful thing that she's putting the diet pills in a, you know, rotund wow, sculpture. Yeah. You're so smart. It's probably not that. Like, it's probably just that they they thought, like you said, this commercial sculpture would not stand out in a model's fitting room. Except that we know how much thought the props department puts into these things. Yeah. So I would say, you know, it's possible because I am so not an expert. And if you belong to any of these cultures, please correct us. But I do know that there are two kinds of Buddha statues. There's like the chubbier, quote, chubby Buddha or whatever he's called. And then there's a more ascetic kind mm -hmm. depicts a much more emaciated figure. There was a choice that was made for them to go for the chubby Buddha instead of the other one. So where were we? We were, oh, we were in the middle of the confrontation in the dressing room with Jenny. Micah shows up and no one else is looking because obviously her cover would be blown if anyone else saw. And she tells Jenny to go home right now and wait for her call. And if she's lucky, she won't report Jenny to the DEA. Jenny tries to get out of it and says, are you sure? Like, I can give you some of the pills. I don't think she fully understands what's happening. She's like, I can give you some of the pills. Like, you can lose those extra five pounds by tomorrow. And Micah just goes, I don't have an extra five pounds. Which, for all of its faults in this episode, in terms of, like, what this can do and say about feminine ideals, I do really like that Micah never lets this particular criticism get to her but again fatness isn't bad so so i think that when we when we think of women and their weight that it certainly mattered less in the past i mean if you think of clothing right that fashion 
in certain time periods is quite forgiving of weight, right? If you if you wear a corset, if you um, if your body is not exposed, your legs are not exposed, your arms are covered, um, then then having extra weight doesn't matter. In fact, it'd be quite attractive, especially in a period where perhaps women wore corsets and low cut low cut dresses where their their breasts were pushed up and so so certainly different fashions lend themselves to different kinds of clothing um, in the 1790s um, during the period immediately following the French Revolution new styles came to be the sort of high-waisted empire dresses that were quite low cut sleeveless revealing um, women would in fact um, not wear chemises, they would not wear anything under their dresses, so their bodies were quite visible. And in the pictures of these women, they're always quite, quite thin. That style goes away um, by the early 19th century. Women are wearing corsets and, and hoop skirts again, and so, so the body is, is you know, concealed, except for their tiny waists that are drawn in by their corsets. Um, by the 20th century, and, and Coco Chanel, I think, is, is partially responsible for this, is that as women start wearing shorter skirts and, and um, clothes that show off their, their arms and their legs a little bit more, it becomes more of an imperative to be fit and to be thinner um, because your body is on display in a way that it was not in earlier centuries. And so certainly there's this connection, I think, between the fashions one wears and the kind of, um, the kind of body type that is considered more ideal. And those, those, the female form you know, over time, it, it changes. It changes depending on the era. My, my daughter and I were looking at um, paintings of women from the Renaissance era and, and the 16th century. I was as I was thinking about some of these issues, and they always have you know pouches or stomach. They, they do not have they do not have abs of, of steel. You know, they they have bodies that look like bodies would look if you didn't go to the gym four times a week. Yeah, and, and that just would never fly today. You know, and if you think think of Botticelli's Venus on the Half Shell, you know she's she's lovely and she's you know thinnish, um, but she's got a tummy and she's she she looks like a normal human being, and that would just never fly in in, in modern photography or modern portraiture, would it? What I like about the line, like I don't have an extra five pounds, is I mean. It's not that it's literally true. Like, Joanne Kelly does not have an extra five pounds. What I like better is the metaphorical reading of, like, whatever my weight is, this is my body, and your opinion of those five pounds is untrue. Yes. Um, that's what I like better is, like, no matter what her size was, Micah would have said that line. We know that for a fact. And so, like, it's it, it's something bigger that we can hopefully gesture to even though there are problems with the very concept of fat versus skinny in this episode. Yeah. So speaking of things women do to their bodies that can be physically harmful, Dr. Adams and I actually got into this when we discussed makeup in historical time periods. The, the prevalence of makeup over time, there's a, there's a well-known book by, by Mariah Martin calling um, Selling Beauty, where she looks at the history of, of cosmetics and the idea that women use these really dangerous products just to make themselves more beautiful right now I now it's not altogether clear that they always knew just how dangerous they were but you know Queen Elizabeth famously died with you know 
what was it, like a half inch of, of lead paint on her face that, to, to make her skin look as white as possible. Guillaume de Poitiers, who was the mistress of, of Henry II of France in the, the mid-16th century, she um, reportedly drank liquid gold. But she, she did it to make her skin appear whiter and to keep her hair blonde. And so, so women historically have, you know, used cosmetics with really dangerous side effects um, with sometimes devastating results, you know, all sort of in the pursuit of beauty. And the question is why? And I guess it's because we know that the way that, um, that the world responds to us is really important. So this leads us to a very mysterious another person, a woman and a man whose face we don't see. Um, the man says he has found the one and shows this old woman Micah's picture, the gorgeous headshot that she was taking earlier, and the older woman says that Micah is perfect. So, who knows? We're going to find out. I just wrote that it's the exact kind of picture an older woman would find attractive and appealing because it has that old Hollywood glam to it. So if you're looking at it with an eye towards, oh yes, when I was young, like that's the perfect picture to show someone. So I think what is important to talk about with this uh, introduction of the older character who on IMDb, uh, they called her the matron. Um, she didn't have a name and we get this kind of, incomplete story about who this older woman is who's been stealing youth we can read the scene multiple ways is it like she just wants to stay alive longer possibly but the show kind of suggests that she wants eternal youth like she she wants to be young because of the way that older women are treated or because of her priorities we possibly get the suggestion that she was a model or something of that kind and that's why she is obsessed with youth. But there's a lot more complexity in this baddie of the week than I think a person might immediately realize. Yeah, you know, there's a famous book that was written in 1942 by Philip Wiley that was called Generation of Vipers. And it portrayed older mothers in particular as these sort of these these life-sucking individuals that that you know that that you know harassed their husbands and sucked the lives out of their sons. Um, he actually coined a term that was called momism. And you know I thought about that a lot back during the you know during the election back in 2016 once again, you know, the, the sort of vicious assaults on Hillary Clinton for all of those characteristics that are associated with older women. And, and you know, it, there was, it, the media just drew on this, the worst of this long legacy of trashing older women. And our assumption is that, that getting old is this, this terrible thing, that it's this, it's this awful fate that awaits us all. And it's always the assumption is that there can't be solidarity among older and younger women, right? Whereas, you know, that, that in fact, older women have a lot to teach younger women. And so, so anyway, so that was, I think that election was very painful for a lot of us who are women of a certain age. I think too, this obsession with youth that, that, you know, comes out in this particular episode of, of Warehouse 13 that, that um, you're discussing here, you know, it's it's a, a specifically American phenomenon. The the obsession with youth, youth, the the um, assumption that you know all women want to to be young and beautiful. Um, 
it's not necessarily the case in all cultures. I mean, I'm a, Fran- a historian of France, and in French history, you know, you have also the image of the older, wiser woman. Um, that is an old trope. Um, the idea of the femme d'insecanage, the woman of a certain age. Um, imagine Catherine de Neuve, or one of those those French women who show up in in French movies or throughout French history, who is elegant, who is you know perfectly coiffed, um, perfectly made up, and who is valued for her wisdom and her conversation. We don't really seem to have that as much in American culture. I think that's really smart, and it didn't occur to me. But it makes sense because there's so much baked in to her as a character that the show relies on us to understand. Because we don't know her name, we don't know her backstory, we don't know her motivation, but we take it on faith that the desire for older women especially to want to be younger or to relive a youthful experience is just something we would understand the motivation for. So I guess we're led to question why we understand that motivation so well, aside from the fact that aging in general is difficult and the concept of death is difficult. It is important that we ask ourselves why it's so easily understandable that someone who, by all appearances, looks to be in a healthy financially I mean I guess we said we can't judge health by looking at it but she's not looking for a cure to an ailment she's looking for youth specifically and she exactly has um she has material goods that signify a very comfortable lifestyle so it's specifically the only variable we have to work with is gender and age yeah Yeah, so I was just saying we have to really look at why we so easily understand why being an older woman would be so difficult that one would go to these extremes. Yeah, and it's also a trope, and I think this is what our artifact expert can illuminate as a historian, like a trope that, like, the old hag, the old witch, the old, like, the old woman character is jealous of the young women characters. And that's just a trope in Western storytelling. And like, why, Um, you know, when so many other cultures kind of valorize the uh, experience and knowledge that comes from being an elder and our culture does the opposite in a lot of cases anyways. And then we have no outro card, but that is the end of the act, and we pick up in Act 4 in the warehouse office, where Claudia comes in looking dejected, and already doesn't notice, and starts talking immediately, and she just sits at her desk and is very silent, and he says, well, how was your day? And she goes, it was perfect, and he just could not understand the sarcasm less. He just goes, oh, good, and continues talking and keeps talking until he turns around and sees Claudia's very emotional and upset face staring back at him, and she does a great job acting here. The She's on the verge of tears, you can tell. She's furious, and she is angry with him, but also at herself. You can tell that she's not, like, projecting 100% of her rage onto him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the crux of her anger is 
that she's upset with him for saying be yourself because she realizes she can't talk about her past at all. It's upsetting. It's dark. It's something that people are prone to judgment about. And she can't talk about her present because it's literally classified. So what can she talk about? She can't be herself. What does that even mean for someone in her position? Yeah. Well, and I think this is huge too, because we know her parents have passed away. And a lot of times, those of us with living parents, um, think of our parents as our past, even though they're still living. And it's like, with Claudia, if she says, even if she says, well, my parents died in an accident or something like that, like, it immediately changes that conversation. And she doesn't want him to feel bad for her. And she wants him to like, know her for who she actually is, but she can't. And like, she uh, is kind of being critical of herself, as she kind of lashes towards Artie, including the line, and I like onions. Um, and then she does the teenage thing, which I did a million times, and kind of skulks into the corner, and she gets out her guitar, um, and I like this, um, we know she's interested in music, but I think this might be the first time we see her with a guitar, um, and that's gonna become a part of her character, and it's part of Allison Skag, and it's cool, and Artie lets her go, he, he, for all credit due to him, a lot of times, when you have an angry teenager, the best thing to do is let them feel their feelings. And that's what he does. Yeah, and he doesn't invalidate them because, yeah, she's a teenager and she's angry, but all of her feelings are valid. These are difficult issues that not a lot of people would know how to navigate. The question that Todd asked her is where she went to high school. And the answer is probably several places because I was in and out of foster care like it's mm -hmm. not it's not just that her parents aren't there and that that's difficult it's all of the ways that, that affected her life and how much can she talk about that without talking about her time in an in institution and it's so much of how she would expect him to react to her that is upsetting and I get it. Like, I, if I was thrown into that situation, I wouldn't know what to say either. So, again, we validate Claudia's difficulties and the feelings she has and return to the modeling, uh, you know, backstage location. Pete tells Micah he's having wicked bad vibes and Micah shouldn't do this because he has the feeling that whatever is happening to the models is actually occurring on the runway. I will say, in my opinion, Pete is stellar in this moment. Yes! This outfit is super 70s vibe to me, but I love it. She looks amazing in it. The dress is the best dress we've seen, which is by design, but I still think that's really cool. And Micah gives in to him right away first when he barges into the dressing room is like are you decent i don't care i'm coming in <laughs> um and then he sees her and he just takes her in and she is clearly already emotional and just says don't like don't make fun of me he's like no i won't but when he starts to see that she actually is upset and she doesn't she just agrees she's like yeah I, I won't go out there he's like well what are you doing you never listen to me and that's when it sort of comes to a head for Micah because she does point in the general direction of out there like no that's not me and this is where I think it becomes different 
than the Sex and the City episode where it's not so much about whether or not Carrie wants to be seen. It's about the image she wants to portray. Mm -hmm. This is about whether or not Micah wants to be seen. And behind the scenes, taking pictures, that's one thing. But going out there for hundreds of photographers, for people to comment on you and about you, it's an entirely different experience, and she's very nervous. And she just tells Pete, that's not me. And what I love about Pete is that he never invalidates or says, no, or it could be, or you're great. He always just says, okay, why? I love it. That's what I said. I think the most feminist thing that happens is she says, that's not me. And he says, why not? And this this does deal with the previous sort of um, juxtaposition we had had of like, Micah says, well, some girls played with Barbies and other girls took fencing lessons. And it's like, you can do both. You can be girly and strong. And these are air quotes on girly. Um, You can be sexy or empowered or whatever image you want and also be something that people don't stereotypically combine with that thing. I think the fact that Pete is aware of that is a real... It's a strength. He's not expecting to be recognized or applauded for saying this. He knows it to be true. It's a strength of him as a man who has surrounded himself with strong female, you know, colleagues that he completely recognizes this. Her answer to why not is because I'm not the pretty one. Mm. And you can see Pete is just reeling from that because on his face is like, like, yeah, I, yes, you are. What? Have you seen yourself, Micah? You're beautiful. But, but he, he doesn't say that. He doesn't. He just says, well, who is the pretty one? Which is, again, the perfect response. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't want someone to fix things for you. You just want someone to hear you. And I think that this is the kind of thing that she just needed him to hear. And she said, she lays it all out there, like, People always thought of her sister as the pretty one. And you get that even from her parents when she was talking about her dad in previous episodes that he always wanted her to be a boy and he treated her like a boy and they played sports together and like that kind of thing. That might be why she takes so much pride in being the girl who took fencing. Yeah, and I think this also inadvertently addresses an issue uh, in historical science fiction and fantasy, which is we do sometimes get science fiction or fantasy women even in like early, you know, early works of the genre, but you either are the princess damsel in distress or the girl who dresses up as a boy and does, uh, you know, fighty, fighty times. Like uh, this happens in Lord of the Rings. This happens in, um, uh, it happens in Game of Thrones with the two sisters. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the book more than the movie, er, more than the show, but it's it's like, okay, well, we'll represent women, but you can you can be a girly girl or a not girly girl, and there's not as much overlap between them. And I like that Micah is addressing that this is something that was applied to her by other people. Like, you are not the girly one. And Pete is confronting her about, like, well, you can be both, and that's fine. And ideally, Tracy would also be presented to us as like also being more complex. But this this scene is about Micah and so we stay focused there. Yes. 
And so that is when we get to the best Pete thing. It's so cute because he's like, like turn around. I can't say this to your face. Where yeah. I've definitely, I definitely have friends who like live on sarcasm. And if they need to be sincere, they will not look you in the eye. Or they'll like be in another room and shout at you. Like it's just, it's a level of comfort with sincerity. And I get it. So he makes... Micah turn around, and he goes, no, 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 I'm not comfortable with this. I need to turn around, too. So they face different directions, which, if you have a friend like that, it seems ridiculous, but it's also not out of the realm of possibility. He says all of the right things. He doesn't over-sexualize any of it. He goes, look, when I first met you, essentially the first thing I noticed is how beautiful you were. But then I got to know you, and I realized you're so beautiful inside, and it's what makes it easy to work with you. You're just Mm -hmm. a good person. Like, I'm paraphrasing, but that's so very much what she needed to hear. Not even just to get out there and do the job that she's supposed to do, but I think that's just something she needed to hear in her life ever. Yeah, and I think um, this is a a challenge that both Jill and I deal with, because we've talked about before, like, being women in male-dominated workplaces, it's like you still sometimes want to be beautiful and that's okay. Like, you know, I teach a class and I feel like I can't make myself too beautiful otherwise they won't respect me. But like, I want to feel good about myself. And like, I think that what this kind of shows us is like, you can be strong and confident and like, it's okay to want to feel good about your image and it's also okay to be beautiful or whatever you want to be. Um, like I really like it and I think you could analyze it to death, but for the most part, it feels really positive to me. Yes. And from there she says, okay, yes, I'm good to go. I'm good to go out there. And Pete realizes he's done the wrong thing. He's motivated her to go out there. But that's the opposite of what he came in there to do. He was having bad vibes. But now he can't tell her not to without deflating the confidence. So he just cheers her on. Um, And as she's out there, she notices the older woman in the audience while Ramana watches Micah walk out and says, oh my gosh, Damien gave her the killer dress, which (laughs) Pete takes very literally and starts trying to beat up Damien um, and says, well, why did you switch the dresses if that one was supposed to go to Ramana? And then we get sort of a real, again, a nuanced moment, which I liked, which was, yeah, he gave the best dress to the new model because Ramana doesn't treat him well. She may be Mm -hmm. good at her job, but she started out being nice to him, and now that she's a big deal she's cruel and he wanted to get back at her and you can see that that landed with her that meant something yes and before we move on i would just like to point out that as micah is walking lady gaga's bad romance is playing yes hello i'm back with another post-production fact which is that in some countries and or on some streaming services Bad Romance is not playing for copyright reasons. You did not hear that song and you maybe heard some sort of similar but stuck music. So yeah, thanks for sharing with us. Which again, came out that year, so they were picking very uh, contemporary of the time music, but also like 
again, we had the sexy song and now we have the bad romance song. Like this sort of undercurrent of the episode is like bad, bad relationships, bad portrayals, bad women. And like, I don't know where to go with that, but it's subtext somewhere. So, eh. Yeah, I agree. It's There's no part of the episode where you see a model who is doing her job well and also thriving internally. Oh, that's such a good way to put it. That's exactly what I was trying to, like, identify. Yes, exactly. And, and I get it. At the time, not at the time the episode was airing, but at the time a lot of the writers may have been paying attention to fashion. So, like, late 90s, right? would be the rise of what was heroin chic and a lot of models were addicted to drugs or made to look like they were addicted to drugs and they got scary thin there were studies of people not in the show obviously but this is a thing that happened there was a time in history very recent history where people were shown pictures of concentration camp victims and pictures of models in black and white and people like young girls couldn't tell the difference and said I want to look like that one and it was a person in a concentration camp it's scary and difficult and hard and we have to really confront what at least American standards of beauty have done to the image of what beautiful is in the minds of a lot of young women so I get why this episode is super critical You're exactly right, and a thing I had discussed with you is that I feel like it's okay to be critical of the fashion industry, and the episode is, but my question is, like, can we be critical of something while also showing ways to thrive within a a difficult, challenging environment? Um, Absolutely. That's what you and I both try to do. Like, we both work in really toxic environments, and we're like, well, what we must do as women fighting for change is to thrive despite the conditions created against us, I guess. Yes, exactly. So, moving towards the final reveal, Micah had noticed the old woman, but when they go out looking for her, she is nowhere to be found. And the only person we do see is the other unrelated uh photographer who took her beauty shots Gunther walking around but we don't get more info we just jump to a new location yes and that is the end of the act but before we go I just want to say that she does have one final confrontation with Damien when she goes backstage she's very proud of herself and P is very proud of her and then she sees Damien and she goes by the way I am not fat and he goes that's the energy I wanted And she just has this perplexed look. I don't know what to do with that, but it happened. And I think that it's supposed to be empowering, but I don't know how to feel about it. I think the idea is that he is validating that modeling is about self-confidence. And she has succeeded as a model by being confident in herself. But like, that doesn't make it okay that he had been calling her fat. I think he thinks he's like, he's some sort of tough love. Trial by fire? Trial by fire, yeah. He's going to teach her how to be a model by, like, putting her through the ringer. But, like, no, let's let's not do that. Like, we're better than that as a society to think that we must force people to suffer 
to to become good at their career like no yes that's that's wrong oh, perfect you're brilliant like I was literally like I don't know what my brain wants me to feel about it and you verbalized it for me thank you the outro card is a box and from there we move on to act five where we see that older woman again the matron in an undisclosed studio area we have sort of like the school photo background happening. Yes, I thought the same thing. <laughs> yes, and uh, again, the person who she is speaking with is just out of view, but that person takes her photo, and then on a computer, we see her transferring a large sum of money, and she asks if it will hurt whatever this process is, and she gets no reply. And the creepiest music is playing. Um, I actually tried to sound hound it to see if it was like special music. It it didn't ping on my phone. So I wonder if it was like created by the amazing composer for this specific episode. Because like it's like creepy singing voices and like vaguely non-English something or other. And we hear that as the photographer gets to work developing the photos in the the dark room dark room thank you so in the dark room this unseen person is developing photos and we see side by side the photo of the older woman that was just taken and a photo of micah and side by side we see the older woman's photo showing a younger woman as micah's photo shows signs of aging and I thought the special effects were actually really good here. I did too, yeah. And then I had a note, it's not our color theory, but just because Jillian is attentive to color, when we cut to Micah, she is in a red silk robe, and it really, really rem is reminiscent of that red dark room um, and kind of like thematically links those ideas Micah is standing there after the show and we're feeling good for what she has accomplished, but she starts to look faint and she acts this very well, saying she's burning up, um, she feels badly, and then she kind of falls and Pete catches her, and again we get the special effect, a sort of swirling light, and she starts to age. And Pete's terrified. Yeah. And as this happens, uh, we go back to the matron who has now become young. And the matron looks at herself and says it was worth every penny. Which is awful. And from there we go to a hospital in New York where Artie and Claudia rush into a room where they find Micah, who is very old and clearly dying. And Claudia looks very emotional and asks if Micah is in pain. And this whole section of Micah behavior, I classified as Pete behavior, not in a bad way. Sometimes you watch something and you're like, oh, they just forgot to write lines for this one person. So they gave, you know, that person's lines to her. This mm -hmm. didn't feel like that. This felt like Micah specifically taking a page out of Pete's book because everyone is upset. And so the only thing she can do is to alleviate it with humor. So... Micah says, aside from a sudden desire to hit the early bird special, she feels fine. Um, which I think makes Pete even more upset because he knows better than anyone what she's doing. And she's like, no, he, he basically is like, no, 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 we're not there yet. We're not at the give up, let's make jokes point yet. 
Yes. What I do appreciate um, is that Micah is not injured. She's just genuinely old. And if we were to think more complexly about like age and American society, it's like the dream is actually in my my personal dream is to die of old age after living a long and happy life surrounded by loved ones. Yeah, I feel like that's everyone's. I don't know. Some weirdos like (laughs) don't want to go through things like arthritis or losing a spouse or whatever. Um, But. I think it's fair to say that in other situations, this would be desirable, but the real issue is that this has been inflicted upon Micah before her time is fair. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, like, she's dying of old age, but she's not old. Exactly. Pete enters very upset. He takes Artie just out of the room. Um, outside the window area to it and he says they need to hurry because the model that we saw at the beginning Isabella died an hour ago which puts a ticking clock on the whole scenario for Micah he says what do we need Artie says we need some of Micah's blood and Pete is way ahead of him has the vial ready he's like what else what else do we need A, a little later in the hospital room Artie reveals that there was silver nitrate in Micah's blood as well as the other blood that they tested from another model, which Artie begins to spitball and theorize while it was used as medicine a long time ago, but Pete immediately knows that it was also used in the manufacture of early photographic film, which I I made a note, I was like, it could seem to other people like this was a big leap, like how would Pete know? But we know that Pete is super interested in the history of media. He knows about the history of comics. He knows about old movies. It makes sense to me that he'd know about this, too. Yeah, we we saw just last week that he was watching the equivalent of, like, Turner Classic Movies, which is, in the United States anyways, is a channel where you watch old movies, but also people tell you facts about history and history of film. Um, and I guess I'm a bad sample because I specialize in old media, but I think a lot of people would be vaguely familiar with the history of photography. It's interesting and it's cool. And silver nitrate plays into that history in a big way. And Pete is able to use that in connection to, I think what he's been seeing all day. Cause not only like we would assume like Artie once Pete mentions it totally knows that fact as well. It's not that Artie didn't know it in his brain, but Pete has been watching people take photos all day. So it's in his mind. Oh, photography, boom, boom. And he's a detective. He makes connections. He does his job. And uh, this brings Artie to a old reminiscence on a guy named Gus, uh, an old warehouse agent who believed that Man Ray, a contemporary of Salvador Dali, had a camera that was an artifact. You know, I wonder if the fact that he was a surrealist is why they have it be his camera, stealing women's youth, because there is something so surreal about that. Um, his, His photography is really amazing. I mean, he's got some... I mean, some really bizarre photographs because of the fact that he's a Dadaist and a surrealist, but also some just really beautiful 
shots of women. There's this famous one called Black and White, where this, this beautiful woman is posing next to some African art, and she's got very white skin, and then she's posing next to this black mask. So, so yeah, so I, I, as I was watching that, I wondered if it was because of that, that connection to, to surrealism that they had it be his camera. He would like double expose things or superimpose things sometimes, and, and I mean I I don't really understand the art of photography very well, but but yeah he would he would um, you know take pictures, take photographs, but then he would do things in the in the dark room to to combine them in really interesting ways, and so that's why I was wondering if they that's where they got the idea for how um, the the age and youth are transferred between these pictures of women. And uh, Claudia was already in the process of doing some tippity typing, but uh, already busts into this too. Uh, Claudia says Man Ray shot some wicked cool pics, and they get into the New York Fashion Week video footage, which makes perfect sense because that's a hugely uh, you know photographed and videotaped event, and use that footage to identify one particular person who was taking photos using an old camera. He took Micah's picture and left. And we would recognize that photographer as the one who told Micah that she had a gift earlier in the episode. Yes. So I think the uh, proliferation of photographers is slightly confusing. There was the sort of European-looking guy with really long hair, uh, and then there's this guy who came up to her in the dressing room, whose name is Perry. Yes. Um, so this is Perry, the short-haired photographer who she met second. Yes. And the next thing we see is a door. Someone knocks on it, and it opens to reveal Claudia standing there. And she says, can I interest you in changing your long-distance carrier? Which is not a thing that people do anymore. Um, <laughs> I don't even know if it was a thing then, but... Perry seemed very confused and was like, uh, no, and starts to close the door when Pete barges in, Tesla drawn, not even remotely messing around. Um, There's a small scuffle, and then they find the pictures that Perry had taken, and Artie realizes that the camera doesn't just steal youth, it transfers it to someone else. Yes, and I would just add that I think it plays off of Claudia's line really well, Pete says, can I interest you in staying alive? (laughs) And it's scary to see Pete get scary, but we know it's because he takes everyone's safety seriously, but with Micah, it's personal, and he has taken this guy down. Well, also, we talk a lot about Micah when we first met her versus Micah now, but the same applies to Pete. Pete was serious. He was focused and kind of aggressive when we first met him. Who he is now is a direct correlation to his relationship with Micah. I think it's a more authentic version of himself, but I think that without Micah, he can easily revert into that more aggressive, jaded personality type. That's a great point. I had not thought of it, but I agree. And um, as this is all, you know, going down... The photographer repeats the idea when Pete's like, why why are you doing this? What are you taking these models for? Claudia even says, why not just take anonymous young people? And Perry, the photographer, says, 
that a model bears her soul and, quote, makes love to the camera, which I don't love the making love part, but... That's the thing people say. It's not a phrase I like, but it's. I don't think that he made that up. Is what I'm getting. No, at. I guess I agree. I agree with that. Yes, I have heard people say that, but it it feels very weird. Um, and he figured out uh not only how to like use this artifact, but already realizes that like, well, if you took the photo and they immediately aged, you would like get caught, right? And the bad photographer Perry says, yes, I used the developing technique to retroactively, you know, age the person. So it's not like you're immediately getting seen doing this thing. You're off in the dark shadows, you know, stealing someone's youth. So. Um, As Claudia wonders how to turn Micah back. The photographer seizes the opening where everyone else is looking at each other and tosses a lighter into the highly flammable developing solution. It all goes kaboom, and he escapes, and we are done with the act. Yes. Uh, Luckily, we cut quickly to the hospital where Artie and Claudia and Pete are all okay, and Artie makes the joke like, no, I didn't need the phoenix, I remembered to duck. Which is good continuity, because just before the explosion, I think it was Pete, it was a male voice that yelled, like, get down, or something like that, um, because those the trained, you know, law enforcement, they see what the bad guy is up to, they all duck. Um, it's sad still, because they had found this guy and then lost him, and things are bleak. Micah begins to, like, kind of say meaningful things, and Pete is like, no, no, no don't start, we're going to save you. And they they start digging for more info of like where Perry the photographer bad guy might have gone. And Claudia has his financial records and notices the flower deliveries that he had been repeatedly making. Um, they can't know who the flowers were delivered to just based on the transaction. But Micah, even in her old age, knows Romana, the model, was receiving flower deliveries that were displeasing to her, and so... We did see a scene earlier. We didn't cover it because there was no good time, but she did receive a bouquet of red roses, and then she threw the roses down and ripped up the note. It didn't seem like anything at the time because she was just doing so many other things that were rude to so many other people. They disguised it well. And this is what's so great about Micah is that, like, Micah was undercover thinking about, like, her photography and her image and her dress and all of this in that moment. But Micah was standing right there and she saw it and she didn't forget. And the second that she hears about the flower delivery, she's like, nope, I know who it was. And that's awesome. Pete uh, compliments, like, yeah, Micah, even at 98, you're still an A-plus detective. And uh, then, you know, they encourage Pete to go because what they realize is that Perry, the photographer, must be in love with Romana. And if they want to find him, you know, he'll be with her or going after her um, to pursue her. So it's Claudia specifically who asks. And she says, well, what if he doesn't tell you what you need, basically? Yeah. Do we take someone else's youth, someone bad? And that's such a good question because you're going to have to encounter this with the artifacts. One, like, when is it okay to use an artifact to save your team? Which, I mean, last episode they had to use the pearl for Lena. 
But two, this is different because someone um, is going to lose their youth if you steal theirs. And the unanswered question kind of replies that, no, they won't steal another person's youth, even if Micah's life is at stake. And I think that's important. Like, that's unethical in their philosophy of the warehouse, and they're not going to do it. And uh, the only option they have is to get the info. Pete's like, he'll tell me, I'll get it, because taking someone else's life is not an option. But. Yes. But it is. It's the only option. Good point, Jill. Because Claudia does say, can we take someone's life, someone bad? And um, then she says, you know, I can, I'm an ex-fan of Man Ray. Which makes Artie realize that Claudia and everybody, you know, they call him the professional name Man Ray, but the photographer had said Manny, which is like a nickname. It's indicating familiarity. Which is weird for someone who's been dead for a real long time. So we, or I mean, I guess I've seen the episodes too many times, but like, we know that this means, oh, so Perry the photographer is in on this. He is, you know buddy-buddy with a guy who was alive in the 30s. Hmm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if that has any correlation with people being far too young appearing for their age. Um, so at the now empty runway room, that's just what I'm calling it. Sure. Perry corners Romana, and we see... What we see is really scary. It's yes. a woman being harassed at work by a man who she has to see at work clearly saying that she is not interested and he says that he got all this money and power not just to impress her but like essentially so he can own her and just because she's not very nice does not mean she deserves this no not at all and i think there's so many again if we view romana with complexity as a character. Like, yeah, she's a mean individual, but she's a woman, she is in danger. She's being attacked by an unsavory person. Um, And he is like, well, clearly you only rejected me because I don't have enough money for you. And like, I hate this so much. It, 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 It comes up in TV and in real life where like men... And I mean, I'm I'm being a little heteronormative, um, but a, a abusive romantic partner assumes that the only reason you don't want them is something that's not actually related to them. Like, oh, I don't have enough money for you or I don't have enough this for you. But if I just fix that thing, then I can have you. And that's not true. I actually genuinely think that Romana dislikes this guy. She's not interested in him. And it wouldn't matter if he had $10 million or however much it is, because she's not into him. And that's fine. If you're not into someone, you reject them and they don't have any right to you just because they're rich or famous or your boss or whatever. Yeah. Um, Boo. I'm I'm angry. Um, Yeah. And... He, you know, he's also making awful judgments, like, about her character. Again, like, well, you are going to be into rich guys who can buy you nice things. And it's like, well, maybe she wants a guy who loves her for who she is, maybe? Yeah, or maybe she made an offhand comment to him at one point because she is rude. Maybe he was like, oh, will you go out with me? And she might have said something like, 
no, I don't go out with middle class people. Like, you you just don't know, like, what she would say. But that just could have been her line to get away from the situation. And then his obsessive personality took that as fact and said, I will fix this. Just, it, it doesn't even have to, I guess what I'm getting at is it doesn't have to be an assumption. It can be based on something that is said that is also taken too far. It doesn't yes. matter why someone says no. When someone says no, that's not your opportunity to say, oh, well, okay, well, I'll change it and then come back again. No means no. Yes. And I think, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I don't have knowledge of this. But I learned on Criminal Minds anyway that a lot of times a stalker or similarly obsessive, like, romantic interest takes something you said and makes it into something else. And it's not the victim's fault that that happens. It's the psyche of the, you know, the individual who is coming after you that, like, they they think something you said was really earnest or really valid for how they should approach you. And that's not your fault. That's that person being really scary in their approach to your relationship. A hundred percent. It, it, you know, something else, I mean, thinking, thinking to the show, the, you found the, well, the sort of courtly love tropes once again, that Romana, the, the, the model who, um, of course, was cat-like and didn't want the other other younger models coming in and taking her place. But but she very much sort of presented like the inaccessible lady of the courtly love drama, um, with the photographer chasing her and everything he does is because he wants her to. He wants her. He wants he wants the beautiful woman that he's pursuing to pay attention to him. Although interestingly, he also wanted to be young and beautiful. And and so that was actually a kind of interesting flip that you had the the male photographer who also wanted to be young and also wanted to be handsome, but also knew that he had to be rich and powerful to attract the attention of the woman. Pete arrives, starts to struggle with Perry, gets Romana out of the way. She's no longer a part of the situation. And then Artie appears and takes a picture of Perry. Yes. And this is interesting because uh, Pete goes for the tackle and he's kind of like in a vulnerable position. But Artie must have come like a few seconds later because they were kind of putting the pieces together right before Pete left the hospital. And it's, you think when you see the flash, like it's Artie with a Tesla or something, but it's actually him with the Man Race camera. Um, because they do snap a picture. He does do the verbal exposition. I double exposed it over an old picture of you. Um, Perry ages after revealing that he's actually 98 years old and used to be a model for Man Ray, and Man Mm -hmm. Ray gave him that camera, he ages rapidly. And I did want to make a weird casting note here. What's his name? Philip Reese. Oh Oh my god. I wondered why I thought he was familiar. And I realize now. If I say the name of a movie, you will understand. Okay. Xenon girl of the 21st century. Oh my god! Oh no! no. Oh Oh my gosh, a bunch of images just came up. It's so funny. He's the singer. (laughs) I will say this. Without information that we would need to talk further, 
the actor that they cast as the older version of him does not look a lot like the younger version of him. Yeah. So yeah, I will just say that the casting choice of the old man versus the younger man seems suspect. Also, his hair grew a lot, which was interesting. Oh my gosh, him in the film Xenon with that hair! I know! Oh, the hair, that's the only <laughs> thing I remember about it. Oh boy. I know. Stetus Lapidus. Oh my gosh. Anyway. Yes. Thanks for at least bringing that to my attention. I appreciate it greatly. No problem. From there, we cut immediately back to the hospital where Micah is fine. She's feeling good in her leather jacket, getting ready to leave the hospital. Um, everyone checks in on her, make sure she's okay. And as Pete is walking out the door and it's just the two of them, Micah starts to thank him for what he said backstage because they actually hadn't had time to just chat between themselves between when she walked on the runway and when all hell started to break loose yes but micah really tried to give him an earnest thanks and he just puts his fingers in his ears and goes la 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 we don't have to talk about this ever again and she <laughs> sort of gives up but and, and then that just seems very genuine and exactly what would happen if you're also the kind of person who makes someone turn around so you can say nice things to them. Um, I yes, it was I actually love it because, and I know we're we're out of time, but I think people could look at this episode as a romantic moment between Pete and Micah. And something that I have always said is that, especially as two queer people who who are attracted to multiple genders, our show will never say that, like, you are invalidating anything by being attracted to someone of a different gender. Um, and so, like, if you want Pete and Micah to be together in your mind, or if you think they have great chemistry, that is valid. And I think that is possible and true to many people's interpretation of the character. My thought, though, is that, like, you could easily read his uh, description to her the back of you know their back-to-back -back thing as romantic but I personally don't like Same. I I actually think this moment at the end where she thanks him and he just is like forget about it forget about it like it's not it's it's not because of any romantic reasons it's because they are colleagues and friends and the best way for them to continue in their professional relationship, which is what both of them want at this time, is to just, like, leave it be and be like, we had a meaningful moment, but it doesn't have to change our friendship or relationship at all. And these people work together every day on a very intimate basis. They know all about each other's personal lives. They don't have a lot of secrets. And I think that lends itself two colleagues sharing more and talking more openly than they would, you know, at a desk job in a nine to five. Absolutely. Yeah. And they have the, you know, the unusual situation where they all live at the B&B together. Yeah. It's their roommates, their colleagues, their best friends. They are people who, by the nature of what they do, have to not just be okay around each other all the time, but have to have a relationship where that is supported by their personal relationship and yes. i get it so again i personally don't read it that way i see them very much as 
a sibling type of relationship, but that's totally fine if you disagree and see it a different way. There's no one right way to be a fan. Yes. Um, and I also think because we kind of spoiled a little that Kelly, uh, Dr. Hernandez is going to come back. Like, um, we know that if Pete is interested in someone, he wants to try and go for it. And so if he's ignoring Micah's compliments or Micah's attention to his kindness, like it's probably cause he is, he is not going there, you know? Yeah. Like he straight up hit on a supermodel and said, what's your opinion on dating civil servants within yeah. moments of meeting her? He's not shy if he is romantically interested in you. And so this takes us to our final like bookend where they're back, uh, Claudia and Artie at the Unavil Diner. And I love what happens because he says he has to apologize She's like, haha, you got a lot to apologize for. What are you actually, you know, apologizing? And he says, you deserve someone better than me. And he can't really complete the sentence, but he says for, you know, and she says a father figure. And what is so meaningful to me is that we, Jill and I, love found family as a concept. Um, I actually have a friend who was just telling me about their dissertation, which is about like queer kinship as like the importance of found family. And I realized maybe one of one of the reasons why it's so big to us is because of that that kind of reading and experience. But like um, the idea that Claudia actually acknowledges, yes, you are like a father is pretty rare. You know, we have like Giles in Buffy is Buffy's father figure but never verbally says it to her. To her. It's said to him by other characters, and then he says it in a song at one point, but they never have an interaction where they acknowledge it to each other. I had the exact same note. Yes. And so I think um, that's the the super, uh, like, example off the top of my head I can think of. But I do think, you know, in a lot of shows or in a lot of shows, they have a kinship relationship that's sibling like or something, but doesn't straight up have a one to one correlation between a parental relationship that is acknowledged between the characters. Yeah. And it it doesn't have to be parental. It can be a sibling love, too. It can be anything. But I think that a lot of shows are afraid to verbalize it because they don't know how to do so without it coming off as cheesy mm-hmm. or insincere or melodramatic. And it takes a lot of confidence in the writing to have that scene where they acknowledge it. And I really like it and I wish more shows would do it because earnestness isn't bad. Yes. I know that a lot of times, especially... In comedy circles, people think earnestness is bad. Um, They think it might defeat the comedic payout or that it's uncomfortable if someone prefers to be earnest rather than being sarcastic. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that especially in a world where a lot of things are difficult for a lot of people, finding kindness and genuine emotion and connections is always going to be important it doesn't have to be overwrought to be real 
And that's what's so good about the delivery of the line is like she kind of like cracks up and is like a father figure and they both kind of crack up and like it feels so natural and effortless that they're having this conversation. And that's why it's not cheesy because it's just true and it's just real and it's there. And then the best ending of it is like Claudia's like, wow, I'm so relieved. I thought you had set up a lame meet and greet between me and Todd and we see if you watch it really carefully, because I remembered this being so funny. Um, you watch really carefully right as she is saying, oh, I was worried for a second. The door to the diner opens and someone comes in and then it pans up to show you that indeed Todd is there. And, you know, Claudia's mad about it, but she tells Artie to go and she stays to talk to Todd. Yeah, she's not. I don't think she's mad. I think she's slightly embarrassed. Yes. Well, right, you don't want your dad texting your crush. Like, you know, I, he's not her literal dad, but this means that that Artie set it up. So it's embarrassing, but she's happy it happened. Yeah. So it ends pretty uh, quick after that. But yay, Todd. Um, I hope she gets to see those abs later. <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> oh gosh and we'll make sure end. we'll make sure y'all see those abs in the show notes oh the show notes are gonna have so many abs <laughs> um and so thank you sorry. so much oh i was just gonna say thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time agents bye i just waved at you <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your patience on that episode because it was the holiday break and then my first week teaching a new class, but I'm having a great time with my students and I appreciate when our listeners allow me that time to do right by them. We would like to remind you all of our Clexicon ticket contest. So the deadline is February 1st. Make sure you listen to part one of this episode, which is number 204, in order to learn all the details. We'll see you next time, agents.